Hello, welcome to the 50-minute hour. This is Corey, and today I'm joined by several gentlemen. Of course, we have Calvin and Jacob, and we have a returning guest, Hank, from the Tarot Podcast, and then we have my new roommate, Seraphim. We lost uh, Tom after the first recording got deleted. Yes, we accidentally... There were some evil spirits... And toes. ...deleted the, uh, <laughs> the recording. So we're having to record again. The gods are displeased that we're bringing too much woke energy into the world. What are we drinking today, Corey? Well, I was drinking whiskey, but I am all out now. <laughs> like no, I'm good. I've got the peach iced tea hard seltzer by Bud Light. Gluten-free. Wow. You're going to like it, damn it. <laughs> it tastes like a LaCroix that someone peed in. You <laughs> said <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what is the main topic today, Corey? Well, what are today, we going to be discussing? We are discussing uh, the grand illusion, and that is a reference to the self, the concept of identity, selfhood, and all the bullshit people fill their minds with about who they are and all that good stuff. So I think we should uh, start at the beginning. And by the beginning, I mean the ancient Greeks, because that's kind of where this whole thing yeah, gets kicked off. Even, even before the Greeks, right? Let's just say like even in tribal societies that exist today or like tribal cultures in general, like there's not this cohesive... I mean, you can look into like the bicameral mind theory and all that, right? There's not this cohesive idea of a self or like any identity where there's like an internal world where things are happening. You're constantly at the mercy of the gods, the angels and demons and spirits and ancestors. Um, there's not this rich inner world of desire and will and all that stuff. Um. And where you really start to see a development of selfhood is with the Greeks and Homer. And even then, and again, right, it's like Homer, it's like, it's, 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 there's compartments. Um, and it's like compartments that are willed in a specific individual way by the gods. So it's like Zeus goes into the chest of Thucydides or, or uh, Perseus or, you know, Phobius gets uh, uh, Paris's arm to throw his spear or something like that. Um, there's individual parts that are possessed. Now, this is still, in a sense, for lack of a better word, a change or pro progress because we're going from a non-articulate thing at all, which might have a soul, but not anything like a self, um, to something that has like individual compartments, um, which is a part of a thing, but it all dies, all goes away, you know, evaporates into to smoke when you go into Hades. Um, and this is what... Plato kind of develops, right? With his, so, so uh, Plato develops a, a, a much more complex articulation of this. That, and also with Socrates, uh, it develops this idea that it actually outlasts death, which is pretty novel, and in, in at least in the specific way Plato was talking about. And so, Plato has tripartite self, and this is basically the whole basis of everything that will come out in the West, including Freud's tripartite: uh, it, it, ego, superego. For Freud, uh, for Plato, you have um, the honor-loving or the uh, uh, the chest, the chest area, which is like this thumos, uh, the thumic part of the soul um, that is courageous or fearing and wants to be light, wants to live forever and wants honor and so on. And then you have the appetitive, which is sex, lust. You know, the, the example Plato gives was a guy outside the city walls. He knows there's a dead body there. He doesn't want to look at it, but he opens up his eyes and he says, have your feast, you whores, you know talking about his eyes, right? So this, even with Plato, we already start to get this Freudian idea of um, parts of within us that are at conflict with each other. We are not the masters in our own house. And just as a quick tangent, this, something a lot of people misunderstand about psychoanalysis and Freudian uh, theory is that the, 
the ego is not the whole conscience. You know, the ego is the house of the conscience, but consciousness is just a small part. It's just a small part of the ego. It's like you have a big iceberg and like at the bottom is the id and the superego. And then most uh, of the ego is, is submerged. There's a little, little tiny part of the ego on top. And that's where we have our self. That's where we have our identity. That's where we have consciousness. All right. And even then, most of the self and identity is still submerged in, beneath. So anyways. Going um, back to the soul. Right. I don't want to get too much into <laughs> Freudian theory here because that'll get distracting. But my point being is that like you can, there's a lot of analogy between Freud and Plato. And Freud loves to cover his tracks. So uh, he's definitely getting this from Plato, whether or not he admits it. But um, so then for Plato, we have, um, so the appetitive, right? The thumos. And then we have the logistone. And the logistone is the rational or, you know, for Freud, kind of like ego. But um, this is, this is the, the system, especially like very directly, the church fathers will go off a lot in their concept of the soul. And um, I mean, one thing I should, I should put here right now is that the soul and the self are not the same thing. The self is totally illusionary. The, the soul exists in some aspect that we might call an individual, but even the individual aspect, which I'll clarify later, is also just a part of a greater whole. And the idea that there's distinction is kind of illusionary. Um, and so for Plato, uh, this is the, the charioteer. If you read Phaedrus, this is the, the book that a lot of the church fathers will go off of. You have the charioteer, which is the Logistone. You have the white horse, which is the Thumos. And then you have the black horse, which is the, the Eros loving, the, the, the appetitive. And Plato's point is like, you don't want to kill the black horse. You don't want to beat it up. You need it because it has so much energy. Eros is a mighty daemon, as Socrates says. And you need that Eros to drive the white horse upward into the heavens to contemplate the forms. Um, the white horse, uh, and, and Plato is speaking very ideally here for like a philosopher king, someone who's ruled by the Logistone. For the vast majority of people in Plato's idea are idiots, buffoons who need to be controlled. And governed by the governed by the philosopher kings. Most people are ruled by the id. Most people are ruled by the appetitive, and that's fine. Plato's like, there's nothing wrong with that. The only injustice is when someone who is appetitive becomes a tries to be a philosopher, or tries to be a, a politician, which Plato says is basically all politicians by nature because they want to have power and desire for power is an appetitive. This is why Plato says that philosophers are basically people who don't want to have rule and they become slaves to the city and are forced to become kings. So for Plato, he kind of inverses everything. Like the kings are also, the highest part of society is also the lowest part of society. The kings are the slaves. And the kings have to be slaves because true kings do not want to rule. They have to be forced against their will into slavery to be kings. All right. So basically, you know, just immediately from that definition alone, every politician has failed Plato's standards. Um, maybe except like uh, Moses or something. But um, so, so in either case, right, um, the, the Logistone is, is trying to direct the power of the black horse, the arrows. He's like, I have arrows. I have these desires. I have to use it. I have to sublimate it. I have to give that energy to the white horse. And the white horse is going to love honor. It's going to love, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take that arrows and it's going to sublimate it to wanting to have the forms. And then the soul is carried on wings of desire, wings of eros into the heavens where it can exist with the forms forever and then reincarnate as a dove or a swan or whatever. And um, so that, that, this stratification of an inner aspect of a psyche, what we might call the soul of psyche, right? That's where you really begin the foundation of self. And even then Plato does not have this concept of the self that we are working with nowadays by any means. But the, the next solidifications you get are Christianity, and even then, like late Christianity, by late, I mean like third, fourth century Christianity and uh, Augustine, which is kind of the apex of late Christianity. And so what happens with Christianity, um, especially again, in, so I, I should say this first, like 
when we look at early Christians, they do not really seem to have this coherent idea of an individual self. And this, this has ramifications in things like soteriology, right? Theology of salvation. So you'll get people like Chrysostom or Augustine for that matter, who even though we're talking about individual damnation, you know, eternal damnation, they are at the same time saying they are arguing against what the majority Christians believe at that time. So you, the question you have to ask, like nowadays we read the Bible, you read the New Testament. It's very strange to most people you read that and you get any idea of something outside of eternal damnation. Like you have the screams that go up forever and ever. You get the goats and the sheep that are divided. It's like, okay, well, obviously we're talking about eternal damnation. So then the question comes from historical perspective or theological perspective. If that's the case, how are these early Christians who spoke the languages that the New Testament and the Old Testament were written in, were raised in that culture, got such a different viewpoint than what we do nowadays. And that is suddenly solved when you realize that they didn't really have this idea of individualistic selfhood. And that, as Greg Anissa says, you have the pleroma and anthropoi, the outpouring of man from Adam, that God made all nations of the earth from one blood of Adam. So you get this aspect where when you're reading anything dealing with healing, which is to say uh, salvation, what we read in being saved in the English, but more properly in the Greek is healing, uh, literally going back to the etymological meaning of religion to tie back to, to tie back to what we were lost from, that is the healing. It's this aspect of Adam, the whole salvation of man in Christ and all the work is to return Adam as a whole with all of man pouring out of Adam back into the, the light of God. And um, just, just to clarify here that there's not, and this is the, the general structure you see in most cultures, right? In most civilizations, it's this aspect of a wholeness that is shared. There's not this individual being that sort of just like, has his own fate in his own hands. I mean, it's this very individualistic idea that develops later on, especially in the West through Augustine, and I'll get there soon. Um, and around the fourth century, really with like Justinian and like all this other like political stuff. And I, I make the same critique Protestants do, but not for the same reasons they do, is that Christianity kind of became less interesting after it got interjected into the Roman Empire. And a, a, a part of that was this invention of the self. And, but especially Augustine, especially in the West, it starts to get really out of hand. What Augustine starts to do is that he develops this rich inner world. So, so whereas the Cappadocian fathers, you know, the, the Eastern church fathers are working much more when, when the Trinity starts to be articulated, you're working much more from bottom up, which is that you have hypostases or, or souls or persons, you know, hypostasis being the part of the mask and Greek theater that projects the voice, right? Kind of counterintuitive because it's actually almost like the opposite. It's actually a much inner deeper aspect. You know, these words change over time. That's why you get all this controversy in the early church over like hypothesis is a heretical word. And then like, if you're not using hypothesis, you're heretical, right? So it seems like the early church is contradicting itself. Well, no, just words change over time. It's also why it's so dangerous to like, just think you can pick up the Bible and have an understanding of what the heck is going on here. Cause it's like words do not mean anything near what they used to mean. And you get very confused if you take that approach, which unfortunately is how most people do approach scripture nowadays. But in either case, um, there's, there's this, uh, this aspect of um, individuation that you start to see in the West develop. And, and, and Augustine is working top down. So he starts with the monad or the Godhead and starts to work down into the hypostases. And because of that, he starts to do this like sort of hermetic thing, like above, so below. He starts to look into the inner richness of the mind. Not to say it doesn't exist, but it's, 
it's understood as being illusionary in the East and wherever it's, it's, it's these phenomenal things that are not really real. But Augustine starts to give it substance and he starts to give it his own agency, its own will, its own fate, that the massa damnata, the vast majority of people are damned for eternity, including unbaptized babies, right? It's like this individual fate that hangs. You know, if you get this ramped up in something like Calvinism or like Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God, it's like every single person has their own individual fate. You know, th this is not the way early Christianity is working. This is something that you see much later later, but it's basically become the only thing people know of when they think about Christianity now, is this individual faith, this individual salvation, not the yeah. anthropoi pl pleroma that we have in Gregory Nisa. Sorry, what were you going to say? I was going to say, can we just define hypostases for like Protestant listeners who... Can I actually comment on that? Yeah. Well, I said it was yeah. the mask of the Greek. Well, yeah. yes. And I, and, and I know that I, I want to actually comment on that more because this is sort yeah. of what I asked you earlier before the toe was destroyed the last podcast. Um, <laughs> that... Um, the hypostasis is an older word that was used kind of before the Christian context. Mm -hmm. But within the Christian context, it was used synonymously with usia yes. for a while and, and, and meaning, you know, the essence. Yes. And it wasn't until the Cappadocians and I think pre pre predominantly Basil and Nyssa who started to redefine it as a sort of personhood. Yeah. And of course, you know, Nyssa particularly should be credited for for defining actually what it, what is our concept of the Trinity. Yeah, as very unique. Now you know we have God and we have you know, oh, see you can you can you can cut this out because I'm going to start to 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 diverge. But actually, a, a criticism of of our mutual uh, mystic Muslim friend uh, of Christianity, um, one that he's brought up to me, is that you know well you didn't really have a sense of 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 Christ as as God. Um, until about the third or fourth century. And I said, well, yes, but every Christian that's worth his, you know, any theologian of Christianity who's, you know, worth anything would, would be able to tell you that himself. You know, it's because we didn't really have really a, a very clear concept of Christ and his relationship with God. Like we had Paul talk about Christ's place in, in salvation, but we didn't really have a clear concept of Christ's relationship to the Godhead. And until the third or fourth well, century- I would say it was there, but it was, it was mystical and it was oral. It was not something that was understood by the masses. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it wasn't a defined thing until yeah. you started to run into things like Arianism. Yes. And, and so then you, then you hit the fourth century, right? Yeah, it becomes and, mainstream kind of after that. Yeah, well you, hit the, well, you hit the fourth century and then you start dealing with like, oh shit, we have to actually define what Christ is. You know, we were kind of operating without having to do that. We now, have to start doing dogmatics yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. And now we have to start, and then you get Athanasius and the, you know, the, the um, Which is on, also on the when Christianity kind of loses its flavor. It, it kind of loses, well, it, yes. Because, it's dogma a, always goes against the mysticism. It's, it's this internal, eternal contradiction that every religion has to face. And yeah, exactly. unfortunately, when, when you start having heresies, you start having to clarify dogmatics and then the mysticism starts to die out. Exactly. It's, it's sort of, the truths are better known when they're unspoken. Yes. And then you have to define them eventually. Anyways, we can be, that could be its own podcast and sort of talking about that, that stuff. But so you hit the fourth century, right? And you start defining who Christ is and you start to find, and that's why, like I told, you know, our friend, you know, like I said, well, and again, any Christian theologian worth his salt knows that it's not, it's not, it's not controversial to know that we didn't know who Christ was uh, in relationship to God until the fourth century. But you hit the fourth century, you start to define that, okay, Christ is God. And then you start to say, well, what is God, right? You know, now, now we have to, you know, is it just Christ and just this idea of the father? And then of course you hit Nyssa and then you hit, okay, well, actually, no, it's not just God and it's not just, you know, the father, it's not just the father and the son. Now it's the father, son and this concept of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so now we have a Trinity. 
And then you start seeing the word hypostasis kind of bringing this back to what we're actually talking about. You get the concept of hypostasis, which is sort of being used synonymously with Usia. And then you get, it was either Basil and Nyssa or maybe both who sort of say, well, no, 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 now, now we shouldn't do that. Now, now we need to define this word hypostasis as different from Usia in essence as a sense of personhood. Mm-hmm. And of course, like it's messy into the fifth century with this Storianism and, and of course the, the split in the church with the Coptics and, mm-hmm. and all that. I mean, that, that's its own mess to deal with. But, but now you start getting this idea of pus- personhood in our definition of God. Yeah. But now we start also getting, and I don't know where this comes in Theologically, you know, I, I feel like it might be a little bit of later development, but I, I'm, I'm simply not well read enough to know. You start to get hypostases now associated with, with humans, you know, yeah. and now we each have our own hypostases. So can you maybe track or, or talk about that development, about hypostases being this concept, pre-Christian concept, to now being defined with Usia and then later becoming its own thing in which, you know, again, the Cappadocians are saying, no, 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 this is different from Usia. This is a certain like self or personhood or whatever. I mean, we do talk about the persons of the Trinity, each unique, you know, but each sharing the Usia. Can, can you kind of track that development and how it maybe relates to what you're saying well, in terms of the development yeah, I mean, that's a whole thing, but I will say quickly, what's important here in relation to what I'm trying to explain about the self is that when the church fathers are talking about this distinction of being or Usia, and about um, the hypostases. They are not talking about the self. They are, they, when they're talking about personhood, they're not, and they're talking about hypostases, they're not talking about the self. The self is something still totally extraneous. Um, again, in the fourth and fifth centuries, you start to get this idea of self, but it's not really articulated specifically, but you can see it growing. It's really with Augustine that you get an articulation of selfhood, which is this inner richness of a psychological world. That Augustine, in that sense, is really the first psychologist. And... You, you get this continued on through Dante, you know, who I love. And then, and especially with Descartes, I think therefore I am and Kant and German idealism and Freud. And you get this whole explosion of this idea of a, that all the outer world is totally defined by our ego and is totally subjective to our ego. And, and Freud then articulates what that ego is in a very specific mechanical, scientific, you know, in a rough sense, uh, broad sense of science, um, exactly what the nature of that thing is and how actually totally chaotic it is. Um, you know, that's kind of like why people will say things like, well, Copernicus revolutionized and a decentralized man because he's no longer the center of the cosmos. And um, Darwin decentralized man because he's no longer the center of biology. You know, he's just this product of apes or whatever. And uh, then Freud decentralizes man because he's not even king of his own house. He's not even the master of his own home, as Freud says. He's not, he's, he's this little tiny dot uh, as surf, uh, surfacing to the top of the iceberg of the psyche. Uh, he has no real particular dominion. Um, it's not like, it's not even like Plato's Logistone, who at least has some power over where his desires are going, at least ideally. You know, most people don't, but even at least ideally. But for Freud, there's not even the ideal. It's just everyone is just totally at the mercy of these unconscious forces. And, and to say, like, on top of German idealism, right? that the entire world is subjective to the ego. And then Freud to say, we're not the master of the ego. Well, there's no free will. There's no control over any of this. Everything's totally surreal and absurd. Um, so 
you, you're getting to the end game here. But but what the shadow to that, the trick to that is that once Freud shows that, once Freud exposes that, because there is it, what Freud is doing is articulating a very specific scientific reality or truth to something that is ultimately illusionary. Nonetheless, illusions have mechanisms. Mirages have laws that dictate how they appear to us. Um, ghosts have their own phantomology, right? So in this sense, what you are describing is real and has a real effect on us, even if it's an illusion, because illusions have an effect. Television is an illusion, but television has a very strong effect on people. Desires are mostly illusionary, but desires have a very strong effect on people. So when you start to articulate that dangerous aspect of, of us, that illusionary aspect that we call the self or the mind or the psyche, um, that brings about this certain power. And now that people like Edward Bernays and Century of the Self, you know, the documentary I've, I've mentioned like seven times in this podcast that you, everyone should watch, is that you look at what's going on there. Edward Bernays is taking the science that Freud discovers and he's using, he's using it to show politicians and ad, advertisers how to manipulate things. Um, you know, you could, you could look at all these people that people want to say are like the beginning of the 19th and 20th and 21st century, like Marx or whatever, Freud even, but it's really none of these people. It's Edward Bernays. Edward Bernays is the most influential person of the 20th and 21st century. If he was not here, everything would be very, very different because he's the one who showed, the, not the masses, but the people who control the masses, how to use the dark magic that Freud discovered in ways that Freud never would have intended. In fact, Freud would be directly opposed to uh, of how to manipulate the masses. Why did Bernays do that? Bernays did that because he wanted to make money. And Bernays did that because he was basically like a sociopath who got some weird kick out of it. He, Bernays, Bernays was not an aristocrat in, in the true sense of the word. He was like the shadow of the aristocrat. A true aristocrat is someone who understands like, like Plato's philosopher kings that they have a certain duty to serve because they've been given certain gifts by God. The shadow of that is an aristocrat who has a pure fetish for control and power over people. And that's what Bernays basically was. He had a... He, he thought everyone is stupid and, and dumb, which is true. But he, he saw that as a particular opportunity or reason to, have a, to basically give them no liberation, to give them no freedom, um, to give them no uh, actual power or distinction and to make them totally subservient as basically happiness-making machines or money-making machines for the elite. And so uh, his aristocracy was not defined by truth and good and beauty, but basically material wealth. And he was like an atheist Jew. So, I mean, that kind of makes sense, but in that, in that sort of dichotomy, but it's like, and so far that's the case, right? He's trying to use Freud's understanding there as a dark science. He's like a Frankenstein. He's using that to show politicians, to show advertisers how to manipulate the masses, not by logical coherent arguments. Like you should buy a Model T Ford because it's fast, it's good, but like associating unconsciously your deepest desires to, to form this idea of selfhood that is now totally puppeted by, by desires that aren't even real. This is why, again, you know, you say things like we talked about this in the sexuality podcast, but it's like saying things like anything like, oh, I'm straight, I'm gay, or I'm, I'm, I'm liberal and, and I'm conservative, whatever. And having so much of that tied to your identity would be so foreign uh, to, to, I mean, politics, not so much. There was a legitimacy of understanding yourself in respect to a nation that had some spiritual aspect, but something like sexuality would be so ridiculous because it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't even process in the mind of most pre-17th century people to define yourself by the sexual orientation or even a concept like sexual orientation because there wasn't really this idea of specific orientation towards someone's based on sex. There was just the duty you had to your nation to have a family. 
Like you might go off and have sex with whores, male or female. Like there, and even then there wasn't a concept of bisexuality. There was just not a specific idea. And now it's so bad that the illusion has become so real, so mighty that we're actually pegged into specific sexual behavior because of those identities. So the illusion has now become the master of us. So, and, th and this is kind of what I see with the church fathers talking about the antichrist. It's like the, the antichrist will rule where Christ is not because for Christ is there's kenosis. They're emptying himself, kind of like Meister Eckhart, giant disco ball in the heaven. All the, all, the, all the souls are individual mirrors that are reflecting God in a specific unique way, but it's all still one being. It's all still the pleroma of man. But each glass or each shard is reflecting God uniquely. But the self, they can only do that because the self has been annihilated. Well, now we live in the century of the self. Now the soul has been annihilated for the sake of the self. So it's the exact opposite. It's anti-Christian, it's anti-Christ. And the antichrist will rule because we have a self that dominates who we are rather than the soul. What Christ came, what John the Baptist was preaching, I must decrease so that he must increase. I must empty myself, right? That's the Christ's kenosis, emptying of his self. So every person empties themselves. And this isn't even Christian. This is just every religion ever, basically. The understand that the self is an illusion. You have to get rid of it. And that, that way you're filled. You're filled with, you know, enlightenments, uh, uh, Atman, or you're filled with uh, love, you caritas in Christianity, so or wisdom or whatever, um, and then you have no illusion of the difference between I and thou. Um, you know, if you want to go for like a Martin Buber sort of approach, I guess. But anyways, what are you saying? Yeah, well, I think that, I think you touched on a lot there, and there's several areas that I think need to be explored more. One, the grandest go ball in the sky. Yeah. I think I think we need to touch on that. Okay. And closely related is is the death of, of the, the ego mm -hmm. and and that tradition, especially as you see it in. I think the East, you know, talks uh, Eastern philosophy talks a lot about that. Right. What I want to what I want to hold on. What I want to talk about before before you start up again is is since we already touched upon it, advertisements, and you and you, and you spoke this about this a little bit more in depth before the evil toe destroyed the last recording of the session. Um, and I want to, and, and I actually want to, I want to talk about that a little further. Um, about Edward, uh, who, what was the Bernays. name? Bernays, yeah. You do see it. So I'm going to actually steal the words out of your mouth. So if I sound like I'm particularly knowledgeable, it's because I, I stole it from two past conversations with you. Um, <laughs> You know, whereas okay, you talk about you know you, you mentioned Model T and and the and the original advertisement, which is like it shows the car and it says this car is efficient, this car is cheap, this car is good. You they know, or, to your intellect. yeah, they appeal to logical you know intellectual things, and that's it. And then you get you know Bernays comes in and and you start to see the development. And I mean, you can best see this you know if, if sort of you know if anyone's seen Mad Men, right? I mean, you see the the development of advertisements and. And how the, the boom of that industry, by the way, in, in, in the 50s and 60s. And it's very kind of in your face. It's very much like you said, like you said, um, the, uh, the hot woman next to the, the car. Uh -huh. and, um, and so it's very kind of in your face. It's sort of, and, and you actually, it's very interesting to look at ads from the, from the, from the mid, you know, mid-century um, you know, which is very, it is very in your face. It's like, oh, you know, your, you know, your housewife will love this. Your husband will love this. What was, what was the Coke advertisement you had, Jacob? Can you say that one? Yeah. So literally I started watching Century of the Self a little while ago. I'm not done with it yet because it's in five 
Four parts, five parts. It's in a lot of parts. Um, but I was at the theater yesterday and they're they're not even trying to hide the advertisements um, and like the manipulation anymore. So there was this advertisement for Diet Coke and the whole advertisement was based around this idea of your mom drinks Diet Coke. You want to be more like your mom because your mom is able to do all these different things. Be like your mom, be with your mom and drink Diet Coke. And like the 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 whole like Oedipal theme of like the entire advertisement is just so blatant yeah, to me. Drink, like, I, drink Coke and your Oedipal problems will be I resolved. literally died laughing in the middle of the theater just and like no one, well, Michael knew why, but no one else knew why I was laughing just because <laughs> it was so blatant. Um, You've seen the truth. You cannot see it. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. There's a famous, a famous advertisement that like has become a meme. It's one on the website Pornhub. But it's for their service, Pornhub Premium. I don't know what that is. I, I haven't researched that. What's but the, the advertisement is just, <laughs> it's just someone like looking at the camera saying, is this loser really jerking off by himself? <laughs> and like they, they just like say, buy this and like we'll fix that for you. So I don't I, understand. I think, is it does it like a, a hooker you hire to come masturbate with you? <laughs> I, online, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, but but that is an example of like it's just saying it's not trying to hide it at all. It just <laughs> exists now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's one of the uh, that's uh, in like the second or third podcast or whatever. That's the hauntology of the pornographic image. Like that's part of what Corey was saying he admired about it mm -hmm. is that you yeah. know it's, it's much like, more honest it's honest about it, at least like it's not trying to hide from you what it really is like it's being honest about the fact that yeah, like yeah it's the truest art we have to today yeah yeah so well yeah I mean I think yeah I think ever I mean that's yeah that's very interesting because there there is a lot of in your face advertisements which is almost like the joke is it's an advertisement, yeah. you know, like it's like, it's like you've, you, you're clued in on the fact like we've been advertising on TV for 50 something years and now, you know, you're used to the thing. And so like, it's like, it's it, the, now the modern thing is, you know, oh, the joke is it's in your face, you know, which is actually kind of scary, you know? And, but there, there are two other advertisements I want to talk about. And then I guess this is going to be our fucking ad episode because I want you to kind of comment on how you track the development. But, you know, it, it, again, it started with the Model T. It's very logical. You know, it's very logical. It's like, you know, efficient, cheap, works, you know, boom, buy it, you know. And then you get to the sort of admin, the, you know, the, the madmen, you know, of, of, of the 50s and 60s. And it's like, you know, oh, buy this and your housewife will love you. Oh, buy this and your husband will think you're a competent housewife. You know, and those are the sort of the two two dynamics of advertisement. And, and, it, and it almost pretty much says that. I mean, it's very, I mean, in, in that sense, it's very direct. It's not very subtle. Then you start getting more subtle advertisements. What I think is interesting, so you you mentioned this, I don't, in, in, the, in the four damn conversations we had about this exact topic, I don't remember if you've said it on 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 record yet, but but you know, you said, you know, the 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 grand stereotype is 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 the hot lady next to the, you know, next to the nice car, you know, and that, that appeals to, you know, to a part of you. What is interesting and what I kept thinking after you first mentioned that to me, right? You know, that the, that sort of the ad of, you know, the, 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 the grand stereotype is the sexy lady next to the, you know, next to the car. Was the Lincoln commercial that Matthew McConaughey did a few years back that kind of got memed and it actually got memed on, you know, like SNL, I think with Jim Carrey. But what was so interesting about that was that McConaughey... Uh, um, you know, he he sort of thought of as 
as sort of an intellectual of types in Hollywood. I, I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't not to, not to start dissing We're on anyone. We're on so many tangents. Podcast. Can you just get to the point? I'm, 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 I'm getting to the point, but wait a moment. We have 50 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> you still don't even give me a chance to answer your first two questions. Okay, well, let me let me finish this one up and then, you know, our editing wizard can kind of find a sense to this this whole rabbit trail that we've all been on. But but you, you I I see the modern commercial is is, you know, McConaughey, you know, yeah, I, I don't I don't really see him as much of an intellectual, but he is sort of seen in that light. And there is the modern car commercial for the Lincoln, right? In which the commercial is just him driving this car and basically giving a soliloquy. And that's the commercial. He's driving at night. He's giving some soliloquy about life. And then at the end of it, it fades to black and it's like a Lincoln logo. And that's a very interesting way, just talking about car advertisements, right? I mean, if you want, if, if, if you're thinking this is rabbit trailing too far, then that, that's going to be what you stick to. Just the advertisement of that, where it starts out with the logical, it's works, it's efficient, it's cheap, to, oh, this car has a pretty lady next to it, to, hey, by the way, you drive this car at night around you start soliloquying in in a nice, you know, almost ASMR type voice of Matthew McConaughey, and you sound really intellectual. Yeah, so, you have social credit, right? Yeah. So, so can you track? I mean, yeah, it has been a rabbit trail, but can you maybe track just that, just the concept of of the advertisement in the 20th century and what it does to the self, of from the pure logical to the kind of you get the yeah. hot woman to yeah. you become an intellectual. Cheesy um, talks about this, so basically. In the 80s, 70s, 80s, um, capitalism is at sort of its purest ideological state, which is where your social, your social capital, your social credit is purely through the status of what you own. So, and then you can still see this even today with like Arabic people, but it's like you own a nice car, you have social status. You own this, you, your social status. You have a nice house in Los Angeles, you have social status. Now that we've reached this 90s, 2000s, you know, some people might call it late capitalism or late stage capitalism or whatever you want to call it. And Mark Fisher will also talk about this in Capitalist Realism, which is a book worth checking out as well. But Jesus' point is like what we shifted to is that social credit is no longer directly uh, equated to owning things, but rather to owning identity. So you own an identity of being an intellectual who has opinions that are nuanced, yet also happen to disconform to whatever the media is ultimately saying, yeah. right? So it's like, oh, you're both like, risque and sort of contra, you know, sort of a, a rebel, but you're always a rebel in a way that ends up agreeing with the mainstream media. So you have to own ideas or own ideologies or own persona or like being an intellectual who soliloquies in his car or whatever. And you buy that idea through buying. So the, the people in the middle strata, you know, you have to buy the idea by consuming material, but the material is no longer what equates to your social capital. It's the idea or the ideology equated with the material thing that you're buying. So we've, we've gone through a redirection of desire or parallax of desire, not from merely owning the car as it was in the 80s, materialism, but now owning the idea that the car represents. Yeah. Um, and this kind of goes back and forth, but we're really reaching the apex of the ideology of materiality nowadays, where it's pure consumption of the music you listen to, the food you buy. I mean, diets are very much in this. Uh, uh, diets are basically 99.9% .9 of the time 
Diets are stupid, narcissistic projections of ego that people do not so much for any sincere care about health. I mean, it's like Sejic says, you don't buy organic apples because you legitimately care about this bullshit. You buy it because it makes you feel good. It's a religious consumption ideology. And so diets are a way of saying you're consuming your ethics. When people no longer have a stratified religious system that connects them to a tradition, they will nonetheless act religiously by consumption. And you act religiously by consumption by buying and consuming the ideology. And diets are such a good manifestation because it's this direct Freudian oral uh, neurosis of buying your ideology and consuming it directly. What you consume is what you are. That's what Savarin says. You are what you eat. You eat organic apples. You're a healthy, wholesome, smart person who cares about the environment, blah, blah, blah. You know, all pure ideology. And so that, that's that relation. But I want to respond to your other question too, which was this relationship of, of, what, of what all this is in the East, because this is something often very misunderstood in the West. When the Eastern spiritualists are talking about things like the illusion of self, the annihilation of self, they're not talking about annihilation or, or, or the illusion of the soul, of the Atman, which is actually what you gain knowledge of when you lose the self. Exactly. It's not, it's not this distinction between West and East religion. They're actually saying the same thing. It's just most Westerners who get into Eastern religion are retarded ego seekers who are just manipulating all this weird stuff into like a post-Christian identity that has nothing to do with Christianity and nothing to do with Eastern religions. It's, it's a totally novel, Bilderberg-funded, New Age bullshit thing. And what you're actually dealing with is basically the perennial truth, which is that the self is actually what gets in the way of Atman. The self is what gets in the way of actual truth, which is understanding the relationship of all souls to each other, to the one, to God. We all go back to God. And... And then your other, this relates to your other question, which was about Meister Eckhart. And I'm, I'm modernizing what he's saying. You know, Meister Eckhart was like this German mystic and he's, you know, probably declared a heretic by the Catholic church, but who cares? He's basically right. And he's really, what he's really doing is take, he's battling the dumb scholasticism, for lack of a better word. And he's trying to take it back to a much more patristic or Eastern view, which is to say that this, this collection of the summation of, of the Pleroma Anthropoi that St. Gregorius is talking about, that's not the words Eckhart will use, but it's close. We're turning back to the, the non-being of in the non and beyond being of God, where we're this giant mass of light and where each soul destroyed of self and the illusion of self is unique because not an individual, but uniquely reflecting the love of God, of Caritas, because he's been so purified. All the saints in heaven are just one giant discobol, all reflecting. You know, Dante uses this pretty allegorically when he gets to Paradiso and you have the rose and you, in the middle of the rose, you have Mary and Mary is like the center of the discobol. And it's like the light of God shines down from heaven onto Mary and Mary's light perpetually motors all the light into all the saints and the flower is blooming eternally before God. It's like God's the sun and Mary's like the petal, the stamen that is receiving the sun and directing that to all the saints. She's the mediatrics of all graces. And so that, that light refracting everywhere and that each soul uniquely refracts the light in their own unique way. Um, but nonetheless, that uh, they are all part of a whole, the pleroma of Adam, the pleroma anthropoi. Um, so that's what I mean by the disco ball analogy. We've been really whiplashing our listeners jumping through the centuries and here, um, cause we were talking a lot about advertisements and then we kind of jumped away, uh, which is fine. Um, because I did actually want to go back to that about the grand disco ball in the sky. Yeah. It's like that song, the wheel in the sky keeps turning the, the disco ball of Eckhart in the sky keeps refracting the energies of God. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you something, but I have another question. So don't. Don't rant too long. How much time do we have left? Yeah, probably? that's actually the first we, we've got about, well, eight minutes? Ten minutes. Ten minutes? Okay. All right. So we got about ten minutes. So 
So yeah, we'll, we'll the evil toe will turn. Well, off you can again edit out a lot of what he said, so you can. We probably have like fifteen minutes left. That's <laughs> what I said was the best part. Um, yeah, but you repeated yourself like seven times. <laughs> Talking about the grand disco ball in the sky, right? And what you were you were saying about you know going back to that. There is a sense that all of humanity is connected, right? Yes. And and okay, so we're all reflecting, but we're all essentially connected, right? Yes. Kind of kind of like a Neon Genesis Evangelion. Yes, like the giant goo at the end, the giant Freudian mass, Fanta. Yeah, that's all the pleroma of man. <laughs> yeah, it's actually deeply theological. So going from that, how do we define? I, I'm just going to read right here from from Corinthians for just one moment. Okay, right? what Which translation? Is, well, I'm. I was about to tell you. Uh, I'm actually going to read the the controversial but yet my favorite heart translation. Okay, David Bentley Hart's translation. Yes. Um, so this is Corinthians 12. Um, you know, For just as the body is one and has many members, yet all the members, while being many, are one body, so also the anointed. For indeed, by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Judeans or Greeks, whether slaves or freemen, and all of us, we're given one spirit to drink. So now there seems to be there in that concept there, and that's been repeated a few times in the New Testament, between a uniquely Christian body of like, you are the body of Christ and you are baptized into this body and it's somewhat unique. How do you relate that, right? The concept of, and, and, and especially in Paul, of the body of Christ that you are sort of, it doesn't matter who you are, right? You know, freeman or slave, you are baptized into this. How do you relate that to this grander concept of, well, actually all of humanity is connected? Yeah. How do you make that distinguishment? Um, well, this, this basically, you're asking a question with ecclesiology, which is what exactly does it mean to be baptized, which would take much longer than the remaining minutes we have to go into. I do want to say briefly that this isn't a good example, nonetheless, of how understanding this illusion of selfhood totally affects hermeneutics. Like I was talking about earlier with soteriology and how just this nuanced understanding of the self as an illusion that the Christians did not have in the early church totally affected how they understood soteriology in reading the Bible in a totally opposite way than we do with the same Bible nowadays. Well, this is another example. You get a Protestant or whoever who reads that passage nowadays and they're thinking of this in such an individualistic way. Like, oh, it's this individual person who's a part of the body of Christ, blah, 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 rather than the much more like sort of spiritual mystical idea of the anthropoi uh, pleroma. Um, and just getting, again, I can't really comment too much because it's such a nuanced debate, but that you will be baptized in fire. You will be baptized in water, you'll be baptized in fire. Well, what is the fire? The fire is the light of God. Well, what is it that you see in Hades? without the mediation, especially in the eschaton, without the mediation of all this bullshit Maya, of all the reality, you're just facing the light of God directly. Whether or not you're rejecting it or accepting that, that is the light that is purifying you. That is the light that is baptizing you. You can be baptized in water and that's the easier way, but some people got to get baptized in fire, right? That's all I'm going to say because this is a very nuanced topic and I don't have enough time to spend on it. But those who have ears to hear will hear what I'm saying. Maybe that's another podcast. Well, well, are we are we absolutely finished now? Or we have we have time for maybe a question or two more. Hey. Yeah, I guess I'm just wondering um, all of this, whether that's marketing or the idea of yourself. Would you see that as sort of linear, as like it's progressing and will yes. 
we'll sort yes. of get more of an idea of ourselves as it goes on. This, or do you see it more as cyclical as we'll no, go back it's, it's to? it's linear. Okay. I mean, in this sense, yes, because this is what I mean with the Antichrist prophecies is that the Antichrist's entire foundation will be built on selfhood and the concept of the self and the conglomeration of selfhood that we have built over the past millennia. And that as history goes on, the self becomes more and more real, which is ultimately an illusion. And what is real, or the soul becomes less and less real, which is what is real. So we basically become less real. We become less being. I mean, this is the same thing Heidegger is critiquing in his critiques of technology. It's the same thing in a much more indirect way Ted Kaczynski is getting at, even though he's not really taking these metaphysical spiritual terms. But if you read Heidegger, you read Ted Kaczynski, you realize they're getting at the same thing here, which is all the illusion or maya that we are building through technology and a reification of desire, reification, a thingification, that is to say, of our identity as being what is real and that by which we consume and materialize our desire. And that's total bullshit. That's total ideology. That's total Maya. It's total illusion. And yet that is what society and culture and technology are increasingly making us be controlled by. And the Antichrist will come into being by the base of that concept of self against the concept of the soul the soul will become less and less real, less and less permeated in our reality, everyday life, because the self has so far taken this egoistic control. And again, it won't, it won't by any means appear egoistic. In fact, it'll appear very sacrificial and charitable by all the sort of post-Christian values that both liberals and conservatives dance around. But it'll very much be a spirit of egotism deep down because it'll be a spirit of self, which is illusionary and has no real substance. So there you have it. We have a time for, we have like maybe four or five minutes left. Any closing points you want to make, Corey? Did you have a question, Seraphim? Well, I just thought that, you know, maybe maybe it would be good to wrap up, you know, with this kind of idea of, of, of how we've fallen, you know, and again, especially in modernity, this, this um, we're so, you know, inundated with all these kind of attacks on, um, on our psyche, you know, with the, the idea of the self and, and what we should be striving for. Is there anything we should like, and this may be kind of too weird of a question, but like, what do we do now in the 21st century facing all of in this? The facing what do you do in the Kali Yuga? Every religion yeah. has told you what to do in this. And they all basically say the same thing, just built in the language of their specific religion, which is inner prayer, inner prayer of the heart, inner prayer of focusing, hesychasm and orthodoxy. Hesychasm. Um, asceticism, every religion, has, every religion has given us the tools to fight the Kali Yuga. It's whether or not you're going to use the tools available. Um, it is true that it's harder, but... Every religion's also said that those who try in the Kali Yuga will be awarded the most grace or the most tools. So once you start that journey, once you start the journey of the tarot, once you start realizing you're the fool and you have to be initiated by the magician, you have to go see the hermit, you have to become the world. Once you've consciously decided that you're going to become the hero, not the hero in the egoistic bullshit way, but the hero in the annihilation of the self, you have to defeat the dragon, you have to defeat the self that is the ego within you. Once you start that journey, the gods will be your guide and they will lead you if you stick sincerely with it. But you have to take advantage of the tools that your traditions have provided you. And every religious tradition has given you those tools. In orthodoxy, that's hesychasm and asceticism and prayer, inner prayer of the heart. And that will lead you to get rid of this notion of the self, kenosis, empty yourself and be united to Christ so that when the Antichrist comes into power, you won't fall for all the delusions that everyone is saying, oh, you have to do this because the media tells you you have to do this and the doctors tell you you have to do this and your dad and your mom tell you you have to do this and everyone, your job is telling you you have to do this. That is going to be the words, that is going to be how the Antichrist manifests himself. It's like this spiritual, social peer pressure, 
right? And he's going to build that up over and over and over. And unless you have the inner heart, unless you have the inner real soul at the expense of self, you will be wrapped up entirely in that ideology. You will be wrapped up in the Antichrist. All righty. That is the end of the 50 minutes. Uh, any closing words you'd like to say? I hate the Antichrist. <laughs> in, the, in the words of uh, Brian Ketterer, repent for the Lord is nigh. Hail. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. See you next time.